because the game is that fast. Your ability to make decisions on the fly has to be excellent. Your mind has to fight through the fatigue. You know, can we have a conversation while you're tired? I was telling one of our guys the other day, like, while you're sipping some water, let's talk, you know, so that you can get in the habit of, if I'm on the defensive end and I'm exhausted, I'm still going to have to talk my pick and roll coverages. I can't get quiet. Small things like that just to trigger the brain in different ways. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome player development coach for the Charlotte Hornets, Nick Friedman. Coach Friedman is here today to discuss adjusting ego, building a player development system, staff energy, and we talk contested twos and skill development accessories during the always fun start, sub, or sit. A big thank you to the hundreds of coaches and staffs from around the world who've joined SG Plus this summer. Your support helps us continue to provide the highest quality content we can. Listeners of the podcast can receive 10% off the membership by entering the code SG10 at checkout. Visit slappingglass.com for more information on the membership today. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Nick Friedman. Coach, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. We've been looking forward to this for a long time. Absolutely. Appreciate you guys having me and the content on here is phenomenal. Just the lineup of speakers from Tibbs to Van Gundy to Cody Topper, Ryan Pannone. It's just a great cast of guys that are high level basketball minds and it's an honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate that. And those guys have been great as well. And we, are, we can't wait to dive in with you today on a bunch of different topics, both technically and kind of off the court as well. And we wanted to start with the concept of energy on a staff and the different types of energy that assistant coaches or guys maybe in a player development role can bring to a staff and how you see your role in that, like what you see your role is in bringing great energy every day to the floor to help the overall team or organization. It's really my primary responsibility to hold myself accountable every single day to bringing genuinely positive energy to our coaches meeting and to the floor, right? And I think the perspective on life that I've just developed overall, you know, even just coming through the pandemic and you know, going through some life circumstances, there's no reason not to be positive. Now, there's the reality of things being difficult. And in order to be successful and reach that ultimate level of positivity that we're all striving towards, you know, you got to face some hard realities. But at the same time, it's a matter of shaping those hard realities into a positive outlook. And in my position, I have to do that. You know, and that's part of my character. It's part of who I am as an individual. And it's my, you know, responsibility to let that thing shine. And so for me in my role, you know, hey, if I'm looking at a player, you know, he may be struggling in an area, but understanding it's okay. How do we just keep grinding and chopping wood to the point where that negative, that liability, that deficiency becomes a positive, right? And so we just have to continually look at the outlook of what if this becomes what we want it to be versus just negatively, you know, looking at, hey, you know, this kid is struggling. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? No, we're going to keep working. And it's all about that mindset of helping these guys believe that if we keep working, we're going to be on the right track. Coach, I'd like to go back to something you said at the very beginning, and it's kind of interesting. You mentioned about bringing energy to both the floor and to coaching meetings. And I think that people can visually understand bringing great energy to the floor but could you maybe dive in a little bit more on bringing great energy to a coaching meeting and kind of ways that you might do that? You know, say we just came away from a loss, but within that loss, you know, the idea of what we're doing, the understanding that if you know, we continue to build these habits that 10 games down the line, we're going to be really good. You know, it's my responsibility to, again, keep it real, keep the understanding of, hey, if we don't pick this thing up, like we're going to be in a place of trouble but also highlighting the fact that let's just keep pounding the stone. You know, let's find the positive in what was a negative and just continue to highlight it and, and emphasize it. You know, and on my end, it's like whenever I'm trying to bring an edit to the meeting, that's always my mindset, right? The what if we are to continually build the habits that we want to build as opposed to getting 
just caught up in the negative and feeling like I'm spiraling and, and nothing's ever going to get better. Because ultimately, if you're putting that energy in the universe, that's what's going to happen, right? So for Absolutely. me, it's always having that mindset of positive energy is going to manifest itself if I really believe in it, right? So for me, that's always been my mentality and you know, something that I hope you know, rubs off on other people. Coach, you've mentioned pounding the stone, chopping the wood. How as a staff in line with staying positive, do you kind of, when things aren't going well, or how do you stay committed to that? It's going to work or eventually it's going to flip and kind of sing the forest through the trees. It comes to a point where you can't just continually stress positive. There have to be those real hard life conversations, right? And when you hit those crossroads, I think that's when your players have to understand, are you really about what you're preaching? And that's when you put the foot down and say, Hey guys, like, you know, the reality is, is if we're not committed to living in the positive and doing the things necessary to make sure that that positivity translate, then we're not going to get anywhere. That's ultimately the, the task as a, of a coach is that when it does come to that crossroads, are you going to have the confidence? Are you going to have the understanding of it's time to really keep this thing real? And if guys can't respond, then they're just not about the process. Right. And so for me, it's again, it's the belief in that positivity that has to make guys truly believe in what you're trying to preach. Within these coaching meetings, how do you maybe approach the head coach if he's looking, if you think it, it, it can work or he's starting to waver or on the other side where you think we need to make a change? How do you approach it or how do you voice your opinion, but also understanding that, you know, at the end of the day, he's the ultimate decision maker? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I've just learned throughout my career is you just have to have thick skin. You got to be prepared for your thousand ideas to all get rejected. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, it's your responsibility to try to bring as many right solutions to the table. Now, I think sometimes we as coaches, we overwhelm ourselves with too many solutions, right? I say a thousand, but it's not necessarily the right approach all the time because then you're just filling your head coach's brain with excess information, right? But I think it's kind of treading that water of, hey, you know, I'm prepared to bring every single possible solution to the table, but then being very strategic as to, you know, can coach hear one or two of my ideas in this meeting? And are those two ideas the ones that are going to translate and ultimately be used? You know, so I think the first and foremost, you know, thing you have to be very confident in is just having a thick enough skin to be rejected in those settings. Kind of transitioning, Nick, into more about what you do right now on the floor with, you know, developing players and, and being the head of player development. And there's a lot in here that we want to explore, but wanted to start about more on the psychological side of your job and how you view, you know, building trust, you know, your role in that part of your job with being a player development coach? Yeah. You know, for me, this is what I do. And it's ultimately my goal for my players to truly make them feel that they can feel my genuine passion for getting them better. Right. So ultimately our relationship on the court has to always start with, look, man, I'm here to see you achieve the best version of yourself possible. And with that, you know, I've always started with a plan, you know, so we're going to dissect, Hey, in the areas of playmaking, shooting, finishing, leadership, your psychology. These are the steps that I feel as if you need to take in order to truly achieve the best version of yourself. And it's about having that conversation. And when that conversation's on the table, you know, it becomes a two-way street. I think a lot of times we as coaches get caught up in our thought process is the best thought process. But in order to come to the understanding of getting a guy to believe in what your plan is going to be, there has to be an agreement between the two parties. You know, you're going to have a player that sometimes is going to be resistant to playing off the catch every single time he touches the ball. But if you show him the examples and you show him how good he can be when he plays with what we call snap mentality, right? And you're watching, you're going over the plan of like, this is the step that you need to take to become that much more effective as a finisher. You know, now the agreement is had, right? Now the understanding is there. So I think it always starts with a conversation in terms of getting guys to mentally buy into what you're trying to do. And then from there, you know, I, the biggest thing that I've really learned, you know, in my eight years doing this is that helping a guy adjust his ego is the number one process to really getting a guy better. I think a lot of guys get the idea confused of when you tell a dude to adjust his ego, it's killing their ego. But ultimately, you have to maintain your identity if you truly want to be a great player in this league. If you aren't a supremely confident player, if you aren't an alpha in your mind and you take that away completely, you're just not going to do you. But ultimately, you have to adjust 
your alpha male to be a consistent player in this league. And a lot of times mm-hmm. guys just get caught up in the idea of like, oh, he's telling me to be something that I'm not. It's like, no, you have to adjust the ego so that ultimately down the line, you can truly be who you are and who you want to be in this league. So, you know, that process right there, that process of ego adjustment, once you figure that out and help a guy figure that out, that's when the skill development part becomes easy. That's when the trust is really built. So then now I can get to the details of truly getting the guy better as opposed to fighting that battle of psychology and day in and day out fighting that ego. On that same thread, are you able to coach them tough or hard at times, uh, you know, especially being more on the skill development side? Yeah, I think it makes things a lot easier, especially when you take the time to thoroughly review that plan with your player. It makes those hard conversations in the moment a lot more easy okay. because trust is there, right? He genuinely feels, hey, this guy's on my side. You know what? Like, I may at times feel as if the process should look a little differently, but this guy has my best interest in mind. Let me trust this. Let me see if it works. And then ultimately it clicks, right? You see it translate in the game. And then all of a sudden that belief becomes that much mm-hmm. more strong. Kind of jumping back on how you adjusting their ego, I guess, what are the specific or what are the conversations you're having or showing them maybe to help kind of get their ego in the right place? I had a really great experience my first year here in Charlotte with being a two-way coach. And it was pretty much my responsibility to develop role players, right? And a guy who's done an unbelievable job in his role here in Charlotte has been Jalen McDaniels. And throughout his, you know, his first two years in the league, it's been a lot of emulation, right? A lot of comparing guys to who we feel as if he could ultimately be in the league, right? Your Jay Crowders, your Mikael Bridges, and is continually just showing the examples of, hey, these are the small sacrificial habits that these guys do on a night-to-night basis. And if we're able to play with that similar mentality, you're going to be able to develop ultimately into a more creative player as you get older into this league. But ultimately, you have to master those sacrificial habits to get where you want to get. So for me, it's always been the emulation process to start. Like, hey, these are guys that I feel as if you can really compare yourself to here are some things that we can take away from their game to apply to your skill set, And then we can build off that, right? Because if you aren't able in those roles to master sacrificial mentality, you can't ultimately be who you want to be in this league. Coach, what are some of the sacrificial habits that you're talking about? Corner spacing. It starts with your running habits, right? Running to the rim, running to corners, a snap mentality. So you're playing with quick decisions, that 0.5 mentality at 0.5 seconds to shoot a ribbit, swing it. You know, your defensive intensity, defensive focus, like It's just those nuts and bolts that you have to get a guy in that position to truly master before he can take that next step of being a truly reliable player on the court. And sometimes guys, they skip that process and they never ultimately allow themselves to blossom and explode in the NBA scene. That's why you see a lot of dudes, you know, Caleb Martin, for instance, in his first year with us, you know, it took him a couple games to really ease himself in. But if you notice his sacrificial mentality was right where it needed to be. And then all of a sudden, six, seven games in, he goes and plays against Atlanta and goes for 20 plus. And that's when, okay, now I'm starting to find my real comfort as a player. I'm starting to find my identity out there within the mix of all these other great players around me. Coach, are there certain players that don't need to have sacrificial habits? Do your best players maybe not have to have all of them? I think at some level they do. You know, and I think the biggest one that I skipped out on is selflessness. In order to be one of the best players in this league, you have to have a selfless identity. You watch Chris Paul, you watch Devin Booker, like when the right play presents itself, they make it continuously, consistently. And if you don't have that ability, if you don't have that mindset to do that, you're not going to maximize yourself because ultimately you're not a winning player at the highest level. But if you go across the board, right, you see these two things you see the ability to adjust the ego and the ability to consistently play selfless. I think those two things, right, are a mainstay of being a great player in this league. And those guys that are willing to just sooner rather than later accept that and accept those two things as being the priority, those are the guys who succeed. One of the things I know that you do well is you build trust kind of off the floor too with the guys that you work with so that the conversations you're having about building sacrificial habits and things like that are a little bit easier because you have a trust built up before you have that conversation. What are some ways that 
you, before you get to those conversations, help build that trust with these guys that, you know, rightfully have big egos or are great players so that those conversations are smoother and more natural? Yeah, I think there's always just the, how's your life going? You know, this, it's not strictly about basketball. You know, how, what drives you? How's your mother doing? How's your father doing? Like just taking the time to just get away from basketball a little bit and always understanding that we're all people at the end of the day. Right. So, you know, having those conversations of just life. And I think that relationship, though, is always started through sweat equity, getting on the court, bumping, being physical, like just being in the mix and, and understanding that you're there in the trenches with them. So I think before anything, like, yeah, you know, we can have the conversations and so forth, but let's get on the court and work. Absolutely. Right. Like we'll talk about a plan, but are you really about being in the gym with me? I think that's the biggest thing is you can talk a big game. You can obviously present a plan. You can do this and do that. But if you're really not about the work, if you're really not about, hey, coach, can you get in the gym tonight at 11 o'clock and get some shots up with me? Like, are you going to be there? Are you going to make the excuse to say that you're too busy? That's the number one thing is building trust through the sweat equity. Coach, so kind of getting more now into the tactical side of things, one of the places we wanted to start is that you know you're in a position with the Hornets where you know your job is to be a player development guy and work with the rest of the staff and and building the skills of the different players on the team. A lot of people I think listen to this show maybe are a high school coach or youth coach or college and maybe don't have a specific person just for player development, but have you know assistant coach that for 20 minutes is going to go work with the guards or the bigs or whatnot. And so wondering what you've learned and maybe some of the things, maybe the pitfalls that coaches might make when trying to just throw player development somewhere into a practice and ways that you think that coaches at all the different levels can maximize whatever time and staff they have to build players on their rosters? It's a great question. I think the number one thing that coaches confuse themselves with with player development is the conceptual aspect of things, right? So if I'm putting a guy through a workout, the way I structure things is within the confines of our offense, right? So if I'm working on pick and rolls or DHOs, like my process is built out of all these finishes, these shots, they come within our play calls, our you know, alignments, right? To get guys as familiar with how the court is going to be spaced. And I think sometimes when, when it comes down to workouts or, or talking about player development, it's all individual skill focus. So if I'm working on a, a tween cross or an in and out cross, right? It's one thing to just rep it, but like, where is that handle going to come in a certain situation or a certain spot on the floor? right? So the way that I'm teaching that, it has to be within the confines of what we're doing. And I think sometimes coaches, they stray away from that because they think, hey, this workout is turning into a practice. When you can really be creative within your offense and teaching guys how to get it within what you're doing, you know? And I think that's the biggest thing that coaches on the player development side really struggle with is separating that practice from individual skill workout mentality. What are the decision processes like, you know, when you get to where you're going to work on, say, with a wing, certain skill sets? Like, how do then you decide what types of offensive actions that you're going to work on uh, specifically for that player? And then is it, you know, bringing in analytics? Is it film? Is it, you know, direction from someone in top down saying, hey, I want them to work on this more? What for you makes a decision on what you actually do with them? The great thing with working for our staff and, and Coach Borrego is, he just empowers you as an assistant, right? So he gives you the freedom to really come up with that plan and come up with that idea of, hey, this is how I feel as if a player is going to develop within our system and he lets you just run with it, right? So first and foremost, it starts with your head coach empowering you to have that ability to just say, hey, I, I truly believe in this plan. Let me execute it. I think then it starts with, all right, what is the most translatable skill of this player? So if I'm looking at one of our wings, the number one thing is he's got to be able to play off the catch, right? Like we want to get down the line of developing this guy into a DHO handler, maybe a second side pick and roll handler. But what is the number one translatable skill for this player's position? And so for our wings, we stress a snap mentality. We stress playing off the catch. We stress rim decisions, right? Once you play off the catch and beat your man to the rim, are you able to read it? And are you able to make the right play consistently, right? So like those two things, first and foremost, straight line drives, and then being able to read the rim. And then we build off of that to say, hey, we're trying to maximize this player's upside. So if I'm looking at 
you know, a guy like Jalen say, hey, I think ultimately down the line, he could become a reliable second side DHO pick and roll handler. So let's rep that, right? Let's rep the decision making within that. Let's rep the handling within that. Let's rep the shooting within that. So it's building out the most translatable skills for that position and making sure like, hey, this is your mindset to start. We're not going anywhere until you master this. But I'm also going to trust you to understand that while we're working on our pick and roll and DHO handling, that you always remember that. Coach, I want to stay on that thread of that second side pick and roll or that secondary action handler. What is the difference between being a first side or a primary pick and roll handler versus a secondary handler? And then what are the reads that the secondary pick and roll handler is going to have that differs then from a primary one? Well, with the primary, it's it's not a lot of live dribble situations okay. where you're getting the ball close to you and you have your dribble alive, right? Whereas, you know, we talk about primary, we're talking about initiating the offense, bringing that thing up, having the leadership qualities to put guys in positions. So I think that's the biggest difference between the primary and the secondary is one, your live dribble and two, you know, where your leadership stands. You know, there's a lot of guys out there that are, that can initiate to just start an action based on what your coach is calling, but they're also, you know, then you get into the trouble of this guy is only an initiator and you're playing him too much of that position, but he doesn't have the ability to really command the floor and put guys in spots, right? So for a guy with three, four upside, you know, positionally, we're talking more second side initiating versus working on in a drill, a dude bringing the ball up and initiating a drag. With the second side, then, is that guy more of looking to finish? I mean, obviously, you're always looking to make the correct reads, but you're putting those players more like simplify the reads, looking to finish than off of that, rather with the first one. It's also that initiation of the offense and get the ball moving. First and foremost, like if you're talking second side actions in the NBA, you're looking at 14, 15 seconds on the shot clock. So there, if I'm coming off a step up, like my first and foremost mindset is, if my big is available early, whether it's a roll or pop, I'm able to make those simple reads mm-hmm. to make sure that my offense is flowing. And a lot of guys say skip the steps of, oh, you know, it's a simple pocket pass. I can routinely make it. But you see a lot of dudes struggle with that because they don't think it's an art. And that simple playmaking is truly an art at this level. So when we're going through those actions in a workout, whether it's a DHO, pick and roll, a pass and chase action, can you make the simple pocket pass? Can you read a rescreen? Like it's all those things at the initial level of the action that we have to master first. And then I'm a true believer that you have to be aggressive and in a way score first at this level because the windows of opportunity, the windows to make plays, if you're passive, they close like that. So ultimately it's like, yeah, we want to talk about the simple reads. We want to talk about the pocket pass if it's available. But if you're not aggressive and you don't have a willingness to score the ball, your reads aren't going to be there. But it's ultimately teaching that balance. And you'll have some growing pains. You're going to have some growing pains where guys are going to be downhill and they're going to be running like a bull through a china shop. But I think you can teach a guy how to slow down versus speed them up. That's really the big thing that I'm always observing these guys is, you know, are you aggressive first and foremost and say, hey, let's take our foot off the gas pedal. Let's calm down and let's make the right read. How are you getting guys to slow down? What are you telling them? Where is there cues or tricks that you're using to get them to slow down? In my workouts, I really try to use as many live bodies as possible. So from a workout perspective, you're always getting guarded. You're always seeing bodies in these actions. So if we're working on a passing chase, right? I'll have one of our video guys, player development guys on the ball. I'll be the screener. My screening technique has gotten really good these days, fellas. Uh, <laughs> sure. I'm a masterful re-screener. But you know, <laughs> I'll have a coach guarding me in the drop, right? So you're visualizing the space. Like it may not be, you know, the most realistic. I mean, I'm 5'9", right? But like you can visualize the space. You can visualize the bodies. So I think that's the first and foremost way of being able to teach it is like, hey, they may make some mistakes, you know, Dan Dixon, who's guarding me or guarding, you know, the guy in the drill may get his hand on a pocket pass, but then you break it down, you teach it, say, Hey, you know, here's the rhythm that you need in this. Here's the footwork that you need in it. So I think that's a great way to teach it is you got to have live bodies on guys at times and then film, you know, it's the combination of both. One thing that I've always done throughout, you know, whether it was running pre-draft in the G league and in the NBA is I think a lot of coaches don't show enough film of your guys working out. I film everything. 
And, you know, there's a lot of technique that can be broken down. There's a lot of technique of, you know, is your motor high enough in this workout? Like, is this really a realistic way to approach a drill? And I think breaking down that film and showing guys of like, hey, this is an excellent rep. This is a game-like translatable rep that you'll see pay the benefit when you get to live action. Or, you know, hey, you know, this is just not translatable. And I think breaking down that film and showing guys their practice habits, their workout habits uh, can really help translate at a high level. Coach, right now we're, as we're recording this, we're pre-draft right now. And one of the topics that always comes up looking into a draft is a guy's motor. You just mentioned it. And in your experience, how much or do you think that someone's motor can get better as a player. I know their skills can get better, their habits can get better, but if someone that doesn't have a great motor, do you think that they're able to develop a better motor? And if so, I guess how? The big thing in defining motor and seeing if it can get better is that motor isn't always the same, right? Like I think there sometimes we have this like golden standard for what motor is, and some guys just operate at different paces. You know, Joe Johnson is an excellent example. I'll never forget, you know, working out Joe couple of years back and we're doing ball handling and it's a, you know, I'm, I'm alternating between him handling a regular, you know, Spalding NBA ball and a heavy basketball. And he's dribbling the, each ball at the same pace is literally like, you couldn't tell that he had, it's slow, it's methodical, it's at its own speed, but that's who he is, you know? And like, he is a, one of the hardest, most diligent workers out there. You're never going to speed him up. And like, that's how he is, right? That's how his motor is. And like, I feel as if sometimes we're like, hey, this guy's got to put the foot on the gas pedal. And it's ultimately like speed, 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 speed. Like, but at the same time, guys operate at different levels of motor. So I think that's one thing for us to always consider is, you know, you're going to have some guys that aren't rah, rah, but they still play hard. They still operate at a very effective level when they're working. You know, you look at the NBA finals and the common denominator is how in supreme shape these guys are. And if you don't have the willingness to be at peak physical condition, that's where things start to become in question. You know, if you're continuously like hitting that wall and not being able to fight that wall, that's where in my mind, I'm able to find this is a problem. You're showing that, hey, I'm getting better on a daily basis. I'm showing that I can hit that wall and fight through it and reach another level of work. That's where I feel as if you can improve the motor because you know, these dudes are so young and they're still learning how to work. And sometimes the process is a little bit slower for others than it is, you know, for the next guy. But, you know, we as coaches have to keep in mind that, you know, there's some guys that they are who they are and for better or worse, that's usually, you know, what the case is going to be. But there are those dudes out there that, you know, they just have to learn. They have to understand like, this is truly what it takes to work at the highest level and be one of the best players in this league. Kind of within that coach, you talked about young guys, I guess, what does skill development look like for, let's say a rookie compared to a veteran? Yeah, I think for a rookie, it starts with the motor. I think at times you have to not be afraid to overload a guy. That doesn't mean you're killing him, but it's more about the, you got to help these guys understand how fast paced the game is. If I'm working with a vet, it's not necessarily going to be like multi-action sequences, right? Where I'm, we're doing corner three, shake up three, come off a pick and roll and hoop, right? It's more so like, hey, we're going to work on the specific rep. Your ability to read the game, your instinct is at a high enough level. So we don't necessarily have to make it live. Whereas with these young guys, there has to be that next play mentality being really instilled in this kid's mindset because the game is that fast. Your ability to make decisions on the fly has to be excellent. So mm -hmm. for me, it's like in those workouts and, and organizing those workouts, it's very high pace, not necessarily making a guy run like crazy, but we're moving on to the next action very quickly. We're moving on to the next drill. If we're taking a drink of water, sometimes we're, hey, we're watching film, you know, we'll watch a quick clip, whether it's 30 seconds, a minute of film, but your mind has to fight through the fatigue. You know, can we have a conversation while you're tired? I was telling one of our guys the other day, like, while you're sipping some water, let's talk. You know, so that you can get in the habit of if I'm on the defensive end and I'm exhausted, I'm still going to have to talk my pick and roll coverages. I can't get quiet. So I think just those gains within the game that you're working on in the workout, those simple conversations, maybe, you know, just talking through what you think of that last drill where you thought you excelled, small things like that, just to trigger the brain in different ways. What do you, in your opinion, I know it's a combination, but what helps slow the game down? The player's mind 
or them improving their skill? Player's mind. I believe so. You know, a film study is huge. This year was a really, you know, my first year being in the NBA and really understanding how film centric the season is. You know, it's, there's so much wear and tear in these guys' bodies, especially with our COVID schedule and our ability to practice and uh, get on the court. You know, you have to be really strategic because you can't, you know, overload these guys physically. So the amount of film that we're watching the amount of like emphasis on helping a guy slow the game down through watching themselves is really important as coaches. Like we have to be very strategic in, in how we're presenting the information. Coach, struggling players, players that are in a shooting slump or for whatever reason are, are struggling. The balance of for you deciding whether they need more reps just to get a bunch of shots up or they need to just maybe tweak something like you're kind of looking more at specific details of their shot or breaking that down, or they need more live, or they need to shoot under pressure. You know, there's all these different ways to work on a guy's skill set. So how do you decide what to work on when someone's struggling? I think it's helping a guy remind themselves to trust in their work. And for me, I've always been a big proponent of we can rep it out and get on the court. And I think that's definitely a way to attack it. But I think showing them instances of what they look like when they are locked in to the best version of themselves, right? So highlight tapes, I think just the, the visualization of continuous makes and showing, you know, a guy like Terry, you know, having made eight threes in a game and reminding himself of like, look, that version of yourself is not too far away. It's just a matter of finding that confidence, finding that psychology to be there. Instead of just getting on the court and repping away and repping away, it's a matter of, hey, let me take a deep breath and remind myself that I've put the work in to be in this position. Sure. And I think that's where the confidence of getting out of a slump comes from, rather than just trying to get on the court and fight through it. And sometimes you need that. But ultimately, I think you've got to help a guy slow down by just reminding them of, hey, we're in a good spot. You know, life is good. Like the process is good. You've done an incredible amount to get to this position. Let's take a deep breath and just remind ourselves of that. Just a quick follow-up. In general... Uh, let's say even just outside or inside of a shooting slump, whether, whether or not, whatever they're doing, what's the balance in your mind of, say, just getting 500 shots up versus, hey, we're going to put time on the clock. You need to make eight out of 10, you know, it's constraints rather than just getting reps. Yeah, it's, you, you got to have a balance between your rep days, your watering the plant days and your efficiency days. I think one thing that I've really embraced in organizing workouts are I actually call them efficiency days. So, you know, say this is a Wednesday, Monday, we wrecked high volume. Tuesday, it was like moderate volume. And then Wednesday, hey, we're going to come in the gym. We're going to shoot 60 game-like shots, you know, within actions, you're going to play against defense. And those are going to be your 60 for the day, you know, and it may be at the rim it may be from three and maybe from mid, but these are your 60 attempts all against live, ask a defense and that's it. And so you have to embrace that mentality of, you know, even if you, you break down some of these high, you know, prolific scores in the league, they're taking 1,000 to 2,000 jump shots for an entire season. So if you break that down, you know, you look at like, hey, you've got to value your attempts. And then you break that down even further to role players, you know, and you're getting one corner three a game, you got to make that shot. So to put that type of, not say pressure, but just, hey, we got to value our reps here. Like we're not just coming to the gym, just watering the plants. Like today is mindset of let me get myself locked into being efficient. So I think having that balance of those high volume, high rep block training days with just we're in here for 40 minutes. It's going to be random. I'm going to put you in actions. I'm going to let you do you, but these are your 60 shots and that's it. Within your workouts, coach, are you tracking their maids and miss? And does that matter if you can go like, you know, you shot from this corner, made this many out of that? Like, do you track it and does it matter? I think it's good for us from a coaching perspective to track it. And then it's a matter of like, how do we want to use it and what's going to best fit the confidence of that player? So, you know, as we all know, there's going to be a ton of guys out there and it kind of, you know, it stinks at times from a player development perspective that there's a couple guys that are just going to shoot poorly in workouts and then they're going to come to the games and they're going to make 40% from three, right? But with those type of guys, it's like you're here and there. If they're really kind of going through the motions, that's when you can present the information of like, hey, you were 35 or 85 in this workout. Like, that's just not good enough. But sometimes it's just you present that information, you might crush a guy's confidence. So it's being really just particular with how I'm going to present that information. So, you know, for me, it's I think it's important for us to really track just so we know, hey, like today we were able to get 
180 made threes, 75 made finishes. And I think one thing that a lot of coaches don't track is the number of passes that you're throwing in a workout. I think like that's a big thing of, hey, you know, it's not necessarily for the player's perspective, but, you know, throwing 35 pocket passes in a workout, like I think that's how you build habit. 35 skip passes, that's the type of habit building that I don't think we as player development coaches really stress. And that's why I don't think we see as much instinct and feel being built because we just simply don't work on passing. We've hit on a number of skills, but what are the skills that you think matter the most that really are important in the game at all levels? Well, I think first and foremost, you got to be able to shoot. There's a lot of fluff that can be you know, covered in a workout, but ultimately like, you got to be able to make shots. And if you can't make shots, it's hard to survive in the NBA and pretty much at any level. Secondly, arguably the number one, but passing. Are you a willing facilitator? Do you have the feel to just make the right place? Whether it's simple, advanced. For us, like if we're not repping rim decisions and we're not repping read and react type skill work, then you know it's hard for a guy to truly become the playmaker that, that they need to be at this level. And, you know, there's a fine balance between you know making everything read and react. We talk about trying to make everything live decisions, but if you're repping it too much, I think you get away from really getting a guy detail oriented. You know, you have to know the specifics of a same hand, same foot finish before you can really implement it live. Like, let's get the footwork down. Let's get this thing right. And then, hey, let's rep it live to see if you can really on the fly get to that footwork, get to that finish. But there's a fine balance between the reading react and, you know, that block training, as we call it, where it's yeah. all scripted. Rim decisions, coach. You've mentioned it a couple of times. What are the rim decisions? Reading, you know, commit from the dunker, reading a commit from the, from the weak side corner, reading a V-back, you know, rotations. It's really just, can a player play off the catch, read the rotation and make the mm-hmm. right decision? That to me is, if your rim decisions aren't consistent, it's not like you're going in there to pass every single time, but if you are consistently reading the rim, that's the difference between good and great in my mind. If you can make those reads consistently, that's where you really take your value to the next level. And within those reads, is it kind of also, I mean, are the finishes, the spatial awareness dictate the finish as well, or when they are attacking the rim and where the help is coming from, knowing their distance and when to pass or when to maybe go to a floater or a pull-up? Absolutely. Like, and, and that's where you have to be careful, right? Because if you're repping rim decisions with a 6'9 wing, you know, the mentality is like, I'm going in there to dunk it. You know, like I, I have to, again, it, you have to be aggressive at this level. But if I'm, you know, going in there, like I said, like a bull out of a China shop and just having no IQ or awareness about you, you know, that's when you become unreliable. That's where we just have to make sure that we're consistent there and being aggressive with making the right play. Coach, want to move now into a fun segment called Start, Sub, or Sit. And so we've got a few of these for you here. We'll move through these and we'll give you three different basketball topics, ask you to start one, ask you to sub one, and then ask you to sit one. And then, you know, you can briefly explain why, and then we can maybe have a discussion around it. So coach, this first Start, Sub, or Sit, everybody wants dunks or open threes. But the reality is you're going to have to take contested twos from time to time. So these are three different types of two-point mid-range type of shots. So start, sub, sit, which ones you'd prefer uh, and think are the most valuable. So start, sub, or sit, the floater, a step back, or a jump stop and kind of like an up and under searching for space. Now, my question to you is, are all these in the paint? Let's go paint. Paint. I'm a big fan of the paint pull-up. I think if any time you can get to a kill spot, it's generally a far higher percentage shot than a lot of guys understand. The paint pull-up is deadly. But I'm going to go with floater as start. Okay. I'm going to sub the up and under because I think guys don't utilize fakes or know how to use fakes enough to get guys in the air. And I'm going to sit the step back. Okay. (laughs) Did I get that right? I don't know if I said the start, sub, or sit correctly. You got Uh, it right. Yeah. It was good. All right. What are you teaching on the floater specifically? I think you said you started that one, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I think the high knee, first and foremost, that you got to get your knee up. You got to emphasize that for, you know, it helps you stay on balance. It helps you stay strong in the core. A lot of guys drift when they don't have their knee up. And then there's like the argument of, you know, am I following through in my floater or is it more of an open palm? And I think like if you really study the best floater finishers in the league, it's really the open palm versus the follow through. So I think those two, you know, and it varies, you know, there's, there's certain guys that are going to teach the follow through. It's really what the player is most comfortable with, but I'm more of a high knee open palm type floater finisher teacher than 
the uh, oh, finish. with the high knee, are you telling them to jump and land in the same spot? No, it, it's a little bit of you're going to have a slight drift or yeah, a slight okay. fall forward. It's not straight up and straight down, but the fundamental of it is just you're you're falling with a strong core. You're not falling with turning your shoulders right. Your shoulders are square to the rim, and you may be drifting, you know, right or left, but ultimately your eyes are to the rim and your shoulders are square to the bucket. And with the floater, where do you want them to put the ball on the rim? Are you teaching like right on the front of the rim? Or are you trying to swish it? Where are they aiming, I guess, on that floater? I'm thinking back rim, you know? So back rim. Yeah. Okay. Whenever I talk about finishing or watch finishing the film session, I'm always trying to emphasize like the no rim makes. But I think when you're helping a guy visualize where to place the ball, like it's kind of like that back rim mentality. Because if you do miss, I feel like that's when you give your bigs more of an opportunity to offensive rebound, right? And right. Getting it at the rim sometimes, like, you know, you'll see a guy, you know, maybe finish 45% on floaters, but if his placement is good and given, you know, his bigs an opportunity to offensive rebound that there's equal value, right? For sure. I think like, yeah, that would be my mentality there. But I, the big thing that I stress more so than the placement of the ball on the rim is like where it's coming from on the floor. So we're, we're talking about like the dots, you know, like we're not settling like at the free throw line for a long float, like even though that may be the shot at times, but if I'm right at the dots and I'm getting to those floater kill spots, like I think that mentality of, oh, hey, this is like realistically where they're going to occur on the court in a game and then building off of that. Coach, what changes, if anything, with a two-foot takeoff for the floater? A lot of rhythm. I think the rhythm of your footwork is everything on your two-foot you know, whether it's a right, left step, a left, right step, but really like being comfortable with like, hey, here are the two main rhythms behind your float of footwork. Naturally, instinctively in the game, you're going to get to either or, but let's get really comfortable with those two footwork. Is it footworks or feet works? I'm sorry. <laughs> Whatever you want. I don't know either. I think Coach Messina calls it feet work is what we've found out from uh, <laughs> Mike Roll. Yeah. Yeah. You sat the step back. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess I'm just wondering more with that being seemingly more and more popular as a, a skill that even younger and younger players are trying to learn. Why is that something within all of these that you would say is the least valuable? I think with the step back, it's more reliant on like what your role is, you know, whereas with the floater, the step through fakes, if you're a skilled player, you've got to be able to make those. But when you yeah. start to rep the, the step backs, those are the ones that can be like, the momentum or vibe killer for your team, depending on who's taking them, right? So if you're repping a step back midi and they're giving no contacts to that, whether it's early clock or late clock, you know, sometimes a lot of guys will go out there and they'll shoot it and that's not their role. And then they'll lose trust with the coach. So I think building off of those other two before you're really repping the step back is something you got to be cognizant of. Okay, coach, my start subsit. So the most important physical attribute that goes into being an elite one-on-one defender. So start, sub, or sit, footwork or feet work, working with your hands or physicality and a perimeter one-on-one defender. Well, I'm going to start with physicality because I think I'll start physicality because with physicality comes pride. And in order to be a great individual defender, you've got to be prideful, right? So I think physicality is the number one. Footwork, I'd say, man, this is a tough one between footwork and length, right? Like, because if you're long, you know, I'll probably say like, let's sub the length because, you know, we can then go down the road and, and try to hammer away and teach the footwork. So let me, let me go with sub length and then, man, I might sound a little bit backwards, but we'll sit footwork. But I think the pride factor and the length factor, you know, those two things, like you got those, maybe we've got the development more so to develop you into a better defender than if you didn't have mm-hmm. either of those. And with kind of the length or the handwork, are you stressing anything, whether to kind of dig with what hand to dig or to pressure the dribble or is there anything or just use your length, be active, be wide? Yeah, it's, it's the early high hand concept. So, you know, if, if I'm chesting a drive, I got to have early high hands to, to not put myself in a position to become foul prone, you know, like with all the, the techniques of foul drawing at the NBA level, if you're not using your length and chesting drives and showing hands. Um, you're going to send a guy to free throw line. So on the ball, like that's, you know, being early with your hand, showing your length early, chesting drives early. Like I think that's the first and foremost uh, way to teaching length and being effective with using your length, you know, off the ball, different case, but just being long in gaps early, but on the ball, showing your length early, you know, trying to impact and impact the vision of the handler. 
Coach, next start subset for you. Let's go. These are three-man actions that you can run offensively, sort of flowing out of transition. Okay, so start sub or sit pistol action, split or delay action, you know, throw it to a post and get some sort of split cut action or going into a double drag where the guard or the wing is either the first or second screener. It can pop or you can play out of it. So start sub sit those three three man actions. I'm going to start pistol. I'm a huge proponent of the action. I just think like it, it helps teach a pitch ahead mentality. And understand that there is a purpose for running ahead of the ball. You know, sometimes guys, they think it's a chore, but it's, hey, if you get ahead of the ball early and you're able to touch corner and snap back and get in that catch position, like you're in a position to make a play. And I think there's just so much creativity and, and react concepts that you can work out of it. And then I'm going to sub delay or splits, so forth. I think with delay, you got to be really careful with if, if you don't treat it as a lifestyle, this is the same thing with pistol. If you don't treat it as a lifestyle where it's second nature and you're really trusting it and and trusting your off-ball movement, it just becomes static and super scoutable. And I really like the action if, if it's embraced the right way. But if it's not embraced the right way, it can just become a cluster and just a, a lack of purpose to it. The double drag, it's tough to sit. Great, quick-hitting action. But I think the more that you can become a little bit less on-ball oriented and versatile and playing off to on the ball, you know, you give your offense a little bit more versatility and selflessness to it because a double drag can result in a zero pass possession a lot of the times, right? For sure. Yeah. The the pistol delay and double drag in that order. Coach, you talked about if you don't embrace the split or delay, it can get bogged down and, and not run well. When you've seen that happen, is that because guys don't cut hard? or they don't understand the reads out of it? I mean, how does the split get bogged down and easy to guard in your mind? It gets treated more as a set than a flow. I think both of those actions, they're not sets. They're, like I said, they're flows, they're lifestyles. It's if you can't get you guys to understand, we're not going to put constraints on you. We want you to be in these spots and we want you to hoop. That's when the action doesn't become what it should be. But when that mentality is mastered behind it, I mean, you've seen with D'Antoni and how he's implemented it throughout his entire career, you know, it's beautiful, you know, in Phoenix with Nash, that was a lifestyle right there. And so, you know, if you're not able to implement it that way, that's when it starts to get stagnant. I think that's when you can get off of it pretty quickly. All right. A quick one, kind of a fun one, coach, the most overrated individual improvement accessory you can have cones, the like soft sticks or the dummies, the stationary dummies, hands up. Most overrated for skill development. I'm going to get rid of the dummies. They're pretty much glorified cones. You know, I'm not a fan of cones either way. It's bones over cones all day. Shout out to Cody <laughs> Toppert for that. Uh, but I'm going to sit life-size yeah. cone. I'm going to sub the cones because I just think like at some level, like that's the root. You know, there's a root of the game to it, right? Like as a kid, you're going out outside, you're putting the cones on the floor at your outdoor court, you're doing handling drills. Like, I mean, that's how we've grown up. So in a way, like just trashing the cone altogether isn't great. I think at some level it's needed. But when you get higher up, you know, it's all about <laughs> the pads, baby. You know, for me, <laughs> it helps me be my, uh, you know, go bear. You know, I got go bear length and I can get in there. I can block a shot. I can talk <laughs> some crap and uh, challenge a guy at the rim, even though I may be <laughs> seven eleven at the time. That's uh, good. You know, it's, uh, it's a good tool. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the the hand pads. I think you can move with them in a realistic way and it, it helps short guys like myself, Yeah, you know, really challenge. Coach, if we were to have thrown uh, like tennis balls in yeah. there, where would they be in the lineup? I'd probably say sub. I think you okay. can do some creative handling stuff with it, just hand-eye coordination. Um, cool. But it's really, to me, it's more of a warm-up just to get that neuromuscular coordination sure. right and, but you know steve nash at santa clara the i guess the legend holds it that he used to dribble a tennis ball all through campus you know so okay it's another way to be creative and test your neuromuscular coordination yeah. worked for him that's for sure <laughs> he instinctive yeah. as they get yeah coach you're off the start sub sit hot seat that was a lot of fun thanks for playing yeah. with us we've got just a couple quick ones for you here to wrap up but before we do really appreciate your time today and kind of diving in on all this stuff. This has been really fun to talk to you about what you do. So thank you for your time. Well, thank you guys. This is great. You guys, again, doing a phenomenal job and, you know, to be in the mix and on slapping glass. And it's a really, you know, inspiring thing for me and where I'm at. So I appreciate that coach. Thank you. Thank you. Well, coach, to wrap up, we'd like to ask and to draw on your experiences and ask about just 
persevering as a coach. You know, we talked a little bit off air that you took a year away from playing basketball and then decided you wanted to get into being a coach. And you were at Miami as a grad assistant, worked your way to the G League and now with the Hornets. So just over the course of your experience, how have you persevered through your career? How have you known when to maybe take a new job or change a job or when to maybe sit tight to help your career grow? I think the biggest thing I've learned is you have to truly reflect and live in the present of your failures. I think for me early on, you know, my year in Maine, when I was with the Maine Red Claws, we had a losing record and it was the, the biggest losing record that I've ever had. And at times you kind of hit a wall and you, you may black out, right? Like you're so frustrated with the failure. You're so frustrated with like, man, is this a representation of me? You know, like, how do I get my guys better? And you start being very critical of yourself, but you don't reflect in the right way. And you're not really learning in the moment of like, when I grow, when I find that opportunity success, I'm going to learn so much from my losses that I'm never going back there. And sometimes as coaches, we don't appreciate that process. And for me, that's the biggest thing that I've learned and being able to persevere is let me write about my losses. Let me journal about this. Let me really make sure that I don't forget and come back to whenever those situations present themselves and just understand that I've been there before. I can get through this. That to me is the number one thing that you need to do to persevere in this business and in this industry. What's a a mistake or failure like you just talked about that has taught you the most, that you've learned from the most about yourself and about coaching in general that has helped you Uh, where you're at today? Just in terms of like a general theme. And it's one thing that I feel as if I pride myself on is just not looking beyond where I'm at. You know, it's cliche. A lot of people say it, but being where your feet are is just the number one pathway to being successful as a coach. If I'm not like bought in every single waking second to being the best possible version of myself in that role, and just being locked into the guys in front of me and showing them love and being there, you know, that to me is when you can really trip over yourself, you know? So for me, like having that mentality of, and just, and making it second nature. And it really has become that for me, like I'm not looking anywhere else than where I am. And sometimes, you know, it's human nature to just get caught up in it and be filled in anxiety and thinking like, man, like I want to be here. I want to be a head coach. I want to be this. But you know, if I get off that path, That's when guys around you start to feel that, you know, and then they don't feel as if you're really there for them. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode with Coach Nick Friedman. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, SGTV, Slapping Glass membership, and more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Do we have a name yet for this thing? I'm like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass.